making our way to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, before we go back to the Gospel of Matthew, we're still in the Gospel of Luke, sort of in the Christmas uh, time, and so we're going to ask the Lord for his blessing as we settle down now, because pastor is speaking. <laughs> that is a sure signal that the service has started. <laughs> And uh, here we go. Let's ask the Lord to clear the clutter in our brains so that we have room to hear what the Spirit is saying to his people. Amen. Amen. Now, Father God, we know that you ordain our footsteps. We know that there's no such thing as coincidences. We're all here to hear this word for reason. And it's for good. Because you love us. You didn't come to condemn us. You came to save Give us a hope and a future, not to harm us. So help us to listen with the ears you provide, God. And especially here in a passage that talks about losing focus, losing sight of Jesus amidst the holidays. It's exactly what could happen to us if we're not careful, cautious, and alert, as your word calls us to be. So give us eyes that can see and a heart that can understand, ears that can hear, in Jesus' name, amen. What's the most important thing you've ever misplaced in your life? I guess that would depend how badly you need the thing and how important or valuable it is, right? If you have sunglasses, the kind that uh, you pick up on the way out of 7-Eleven or a ballpoint pen you were just holding and you've misplaced it, it's a bother, but it's not the end of the world, right? So if you take it up a notch, though, your driver's license, proof of registration, that all better be handy when somebody asks for it, you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying there? And so, yeah. How about your Visa card or your debit card that you left in the ATM machine? Because you care about people, right? <laughs> Or a special photo from childhood, you know, a printed kind that you don't have a digital record of. And so, or a gold pocket watch. I think you know what I'm talking about. Some of you uh, have anxiety just thinking about misplacing your wedding ring or something like that. I read a recent poll about Americans who are always misplacing things. Did you know, by the way, each American spends about two and a half days a year searching for things they misplace. And what do we replace the most? Here is in first place, the TV remote. You know what I decided? You know, let's just put it in the crevice between the two cushions. That's where we'll keep it, you know? And so we always know where it is. It's in between the cushions. And so next up would be phones. Uh, then next after that is your car. 
You know, when you go to a place over and over again, it's hard to remember where you're parked, apparently. Uh, car keys, glasses, shoes. You know, the other day, I had one shoe, and I couldn't find the other one. And I'm like, this, how does this even happen? How, how is this possible? And I was talking to myself out loud, and I said, we don't even have a dog, you know? <laughs> uh, I found it. It was under the bed, you know. Yeah, wallets and purses and all of that. So, uh, yeah, no doubt um, we lose things because that's what we do. Take Joseph and Mary, for example. Now, what makes the story so intriguing and so delightful to tell, of course, after the fact, from Mary and Joseph's point of view, it becomes funny only then, but it wasn't a hammer that Joseph misplaced there in the carpenter's shop, and it wasn't a utensil there in Mary's kitchen. It was a little bit more valuable than that. This couple had misplaced God's only begotten son, <laughs> entrusted to their care, and yet they misplaced the Messiah. I would suggest, though, that it's not just something they did, but it's something more common, and that's why it appears in the scriptures. Losing sight of Jesus during the holidays. It was holiday time and a lot of hubbub and commotion and celebration and boom. If Mary and Joseph can lose sight of the Son of God, so can you and so can I. And so... Yes, indeed, there's a lot of insights. When you first read a story in the Bible, it's like, oh, okay, I think I understand that. But when you go over it, line by line, you see that the Word of God is alive, and it has so much to say to us. And boy, on top of everything else here, Jesus speaks for the first time at 12 right here in our passage. And if you take the words that come out of the mouth of the Son of God who created the heavens and the earth, that 12-year-old, your life will be changed. The truth is so spectacular there. We're going to take a look at that as we now go uh, from Jesus' infancy to his adolescence. In one verse, we were going to Fast forward 12 years. And so we'll take a look at the opening verses. We'll park along the way. That's how we'll do it this time. Verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the Bible. Leviticus chapter 12 for baby dedication. So Jesus was eight days old. They took him to the temple, dedicated him, named him officially Yeshua, the Lord saves. They returned to Galilee, up north, 80 miles, it's a three-day journey, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the holiday of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the celebration, according to the custom, let's park there, get situated for the setting of this amazing story. And so, yes, uh, Luke is telling us the greatest story that's ever been told, and he's going to transition now from the baby dedication, verse 39, 
when Jesus is just an infant, only eight days old, to Passover event, to when Jesus was becoming a man in Jewish uh, custom, that is bar mitzvah, bar in Hebrew, son of mitzvah, the commandments. And so to become an official, responsible uh, man before God, that's just the time men start wearing the the yamaha there on the head to say, I'm under the law of the Lord. And so this is what was going on. So between verses 39 and 41 in your text, there Jesus goes from a baby to a teenager in less than two verses. They're also real, isn't it? Talking about the fullness of God in human form. That's how Colossians 2.9 describes Jesus. He is the God-man. He's born of a woman, conceived of the Holy Spirit. Unto us a child was born, unto us a son given. He has two natures, fully man and fully God at 12 years old. He never stops being God the Son ever from conception all the way through to who he is today, exalted man Jesus, who is also at the same time the eternal co-equal second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who is called the radiance of God's glory, which means the, the outshining of God pressed into human flesh and blood. The word was with God, the word was God, and the word that was God became flesh and blood. And so this is an amazing thing to just look at a 12-year-old middle school boy with looking back on 2,000 years. I know that was the one who Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says, by him all things hold together and were created by him. And there he is in the temple And so, yeah, so they are now uh, returning uh, to Jerusalem, right? And But what happened during Jesus' childhood, uh, he tells you in that one verse, you're not going to get much. There's something called the Gnostic Gospels, which is heresy, where writers tried to want to be gospel writers, tell us all about what happened during the childhood days of Jesus. But uh, it's all, you know, it should have been called the book of First Balonians. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's all a bunch of lies. It's got Jesus making clay pigeons by the river when he's six years old, and then he claps his hands and the pigeons fly away, you know. That's like, wow, come on. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. One British Anglican theologian who I read and love from the 1600s, British guy, says this, where the scripture hath no tongue, we must have no ears. Ah, very good. Where the Bible's silent, you don't make stuff up, right? That's a simple version there, the American casual version. All right, so uh, there's one thing God wants you to know about the childhood of his only son. He thrived, you know, in a natural but albeit blessed way for sure. 
he was unimpeded by sin or hereditary uh, defects. So verse 40 has three things God wants you to know about the, the boy Jesus. He became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and he was covered with favor, of course. He comes from the heart of the Father. No man has ever seen God, quoting John chapter 1. No man has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who proceeds from God, has made him known, full of grace and truth. And so, yeah, the favor of God is resting on this boy. And so, uh, by the way, in verse 40, parents of kids here, grandma and grandpa, uh, let this become a daily prayer template for you. A lot, through, a lot of Christians have done this through the ages. The prayer for the little ones are that they become strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, that they are filled with wisdom and discernment, and that they are covered with God's favor and protection. And so those are the three dynamics, just to go over them. To become strong, the King James has to wax strong, which just means to increase over time. If the idea there is a well-nourished plant, like really verdant green and lush and uh, rigorous and hardy. That's the idea that, that he was just full of life. And then he goes on to say he was filled with wisdom. In other words, he was a quick learner. So he did not, that when Jesus was six, he was a perfect six-year-old. He didn't have the understanding of a 30-year-old when he was six. He had the perfect understanding of uh, what God intended a sinless six-year-old to be. Now, that's a miracle, <laughs> all right? Uh, even more so a sinless junior hire. <laughs> no, yeah, so I think you know what I'm getting at there. So he was filled with wisdom. It means he had a depth of moral understanding. You know, the sinless one, as he's called, would know... <laughs> quite easily right from wrong and have a better aptitude to want to do the right thing. So that's what that word means. And he loved the Sabbath and listening to the uh, teaching and he knew all the Bible heroes and all of that. Uh, and he was quoting scriptures probably from a really young age, you know? And then the last thing overshadowed with God's special favor from the Father. And as I've already said, you know, God, he has a special relationship. He is not just a son of God like we are or have been made anyway, adopted in as sons. He is the son of God, a real difference. And so as such, God's hand of favors upon him, of course, with angels attending. I, I bet if you could see into the invisible spiritual realms around Jesus, Joseph and Mary, I mean, I'm sure Joseph and Mary are glad they couldn't see because there must have been just a lot of angelic activity for sure. And so, yeah, so uh, one writer said this as we move along from the just the perfection and the soundness of Jesus as a boy. Of all the miracles that astound, though this one rarely mentioned, the community of Nazareth privileged to see the only perfect human specimen that ever walked the earth. 
So much so, one writer said that when he opened his mouth in Nazareth, the way he did in that synagogue in Luke chapter 4, when he said, I am the Messiah, he read the passage and he said, today you guys have heard this, guess what, it's me. They should have all, because they have seen human perfection, which is a miracle of miracles, never a wrong word, never a wrong attitude, never a wrong deed, perfect in pain and sorrow, in joy. They watched that. They should have all fallen down at his feet and said, truly, you are the son of God, just merely at his human perfection. He was the sinless one. And so now he's 12, fast forwarding to verses 40 and 41, fast forwards us to Passover, and we find out that they're a good Jewish family because they do what the law of the Bible said to do. Uh, there were three holidays. They called them feasts because there was a lot of food involved. And so three of them were mandated for adult Jewish males. Mary didn't have to go, but she wouldn't miss out because she's that kind of woman, right? And so... Uh, you've got Passover, 80-mile trek, as I said, three days down, right? And so the heart of Judaism is Passover, and it's the heart of the gospel. If you don't get Passover, you're missing out. He died on Passover. He's the Passover lamb. And so this is all going to start to make sense to you, why Jesus might be enthralled on Passover with the teaching about Passover, considering who we know him to be. So Passover, of course, 1,400 years earlier. So the Jews had been celebrating Passover for 1,400 years. That's a lot of dress rehearsals, folks. And so what it was was plague number 10, busting them out of the slave pits in Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and God said, look, I'm going to send death now. The only way out of it is the avenger comes to claim the life of those who have sinned, representing there. There's one way out. God, the Lord tells Moses, here's what to do. Take a lamb, an innocent lamb, and slaughter that lamb, and use its blood, and put it as a sign on the doorpost. Hey, paid, paid up, paid up, death. Don't come calling here. There's been a death on our behalf. Somebody's already died. So death comes calling and says, pay up, sinners. Ah, uh, and then the Lord says in Exodus 12, first Passover, I will see the blood and I will pass over. Do you see? And now we take that blood of the real Passover lamb who died on Passover and apply it to the doorposts of our hearts by faith. And so there it is. Now, get this, two million, Josephus says, two million pilgrims, as they're called, making a pilgrimage, uh, coming to Jerusalem. Two million, each family bringing a lamb. So you're hearing all of the bleating of the lambs in tow. The lambs are with them. They bring them to Jerusalem to be sacrificed there, and they have a big celebration, and that lamb sustains the meals. They bring it, but it represents making peace with God through the blood. The lamb is the stand-in for the death required because of our sin. And then there's a celebration which the lamb is eaten there. That is the big deal. But I want you to picture all the lambs, all the families bringing in 
from wherever they're coming with the lambs, everywhere you see lambs, because each family's bringing one. And Joseph and Mary brought a lamb to Passover. Two lambs. One, an animal. And two, Mary's son. The sacrifice for the sins, not just of believers, but of the sins of the whole world upon him. Yes, indeed. So they bring Jesus to Jerusalem. He's becoming a man. It might be time for his bar mitzvah. And he's at the Passover in the temple, verse 43. So now, after the festival is over, while his parents were returning home, they get into the car, (laughs) okay? The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Verse 44, thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day without the Lord. (laughs) Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. The word there, search, is the strongest possible form of Greek, which means like tearing things apart and uh, quite a uh, chaotic uh, picture there. And so we move from holiday tradition, first point to second point, note takers, every parent's nightmare. All right, so Jesus goes missing. Jesus doesn't see it that way, but from Mary and Joseph's point of view, he is missing. And so the caravan uh, loads up and leaves, and here's how it usually went. The women and the children with some armed guards, men, would go in one caravan, and the men with the older boys in another, right? And so here's surely what what went on. Mary is thinking, oh, how sweet, it's his bar mitzvah. He's a big boy now, and so he's with Joseph and the older boys. And Joseph is thinking, well, of course, where's Jesus? Where he's always been with Mary and who is also currently watching at least four or five other babies. Mary will have six that we know of, four boys who are named in the gospel, and then it says, his sisters, plural. So that means at least two. So we got four boys and two girls, at least, maybe more, who follow Jesus. And so Mary's just not bored, all right? Uh, She's got her hands full. And so when she's thinking about the oldest boy, who's now 12 and been bar mitzvahed, she's thinking how nice to be with Joseph and the older boys. He's thinking what's always happened, probably thinking that that he's with the kids as usual. And so one full day later, up and over the hill of Jericho, man, it's only 15 miles, but surely that's enough for one day. And then you get over that hill if you've been there It's quite a little trek. And so 15 miles later, they stop, and I imagine it. They're unpacking. They're setting up. They're washing their hands, pouring water, and getting the food and uh, drinks all ready, and the bedding. And now families, the two caravans have met, 
And now the families are separating for the sleeping area, and they're rolling out their bedding and all of that stuff. And I just imagine it. Joseph comes over carrying something, puts the sack down, and Mary and, and Joseph embrace. And then Mary says, so how did he do with all the older boys? And Joseph says, how'd who do? And then uh, Mary said, Jesus, of course. And then Joseph says, oh, come on, not funny, Mary. He's with you, right? <laughs> and then Mary just burst into tears. <laughs> you know? This is how women tell men there's a problem. <laughs> and men don't try to fix their problem, okay? That's not what they're asking for. They're asking for you to put your arms around them and say, oh, you're hurting. How terrible. How can I be of some help to you? I just, I love you. And just hug them. All right, because if you try to fix their problem, that's not going to be good. You're, you're going to hear something like, you don't care about me. And it's like, well, that's why I told you how to fix your problem. But I'm trying to save you $125 an hour, gentlemen. And I don't know. I think you should listen up. All right. So now this whole story reminds me. Of, I didn't tell you what I was preaching on. You asked me, but I wanted to keep it as a secret because I wanted to tell the story. You do remember, don't you? All right, you know where I'm going? Petaluma, 20 years ago, the kids are five, seven, and nine. Uh, we take two caravans because I'm a pastor and though we're always taking two cars to church. And so it went long to Calvary Petaluma at the evening service. It was about 9.30, right? And so when I get home, I'm like, you know, what's up? The kids are running around. Barb's already home. And about 15 minutes later, I just noticed, I said, hey, well, what's up with PJ, the five-year-old? What's up with PJ? He's already in bed. And she goes, huh, funny. <laughs> And uh, she says, yeah, I didn't see him walk in with you. And I said, Barb, really? Come on. Okay, ha, ha, I get it, you know. And then, you know, the look on her face was like, if you don't get in the car now, I'm calling the police. So <laughs> I got in the car. I drove like a crazy person. It's almost 10 o'clock at night. He's five years old, right? So I get to I, oh, I, I just like in the movies. I mean, just picture the car pulling up, parked halfway in the street, the doors fly open, and I run up the stairs to open door there in Petaluma, and Pastor Jay and Pastor Chris are walking down the steps, and as I pass by, I hear Jay say, did you hear the one about the pastor left his kid at church? <laughs> he was fine. The word for frantic there, man, <laughs> is high and low, becomes a scene. Uh, some writers were saying it's hugely humbling because uh, it's an extra day of expense to people who had to go with them. The, the siblings are all another layer of resentment because it's always all about Jesus, you know? <laughs> well, it is. I'm sorry, kids. Get over it. You know, when Mary says, you know, hey, James, why can't you be more like your big brother? <laughs> James could say, because he's God, all right? <laughs> James didn't know. James and Jude, James and Jude of James chapter one through four there, or five, whoops. And then Jude of one chapter, they're his half-brothers. 
But they didn't believe in him till after the resurrection. Wow. Because of things like this. Resentment. They resented him. And so, yeah, let's finish up. Verses 46 through 50. After three days... They found him in the temple courts. Go figure. The Lord would be in the temple. What? Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. His answers. They caught on. This is no ordinary child. Let's start asking him the questions. And he had answers. Verse 48, when his parents saw him, and when the Bible says father and mother and uses Joseph as a father or parents, come on, we've already, he, they've already established that he's not the bio father. So don't get all like, oh, I can't believe they call him father, you know. They've established he had nothing to do with it, all right? When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Oy vey, your father and I, that's what we say. <laughs> your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. How could you do this? Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be? in my father's house. But they didn't understand what he was saying. Well, yeah, that's how it goes there. And so, moral of the story, note takers, number three. If you're looking for the Lord, it's not hard to find him. There are certain places the Lord likes to manifest himself and to be, to hang out, as it were. And so, after three days, that's a long time. It probably means that it was one day traveling away, one day to get back. And you know they didn't just turn around and, and travel at night. You just didn't do that. So the next day they came over. That's two days. And then on the third day, they find him. And of course, on the third day is code in the Bible for death and resurrection, which is the event that opens the doors to paradise and provides an escape for man to live forever and escape the wrath of God and eternal death. That's why through the Bible, there's always this code on the third day, boom, Always. And so just so you know, pay attention. You'll see it everywhere. Oh, on the third day, you know, Jonah comes up from the dead on the third day. It's on the third day, Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And so on the third day, he looks up. It's always there because God is saying, This is the event which will save your soul, your eternal soul. And so praise the Lord for little insights like that. So where do they find him? They find him at church. They find him at the temple, the gathering place, the gathering place where corporate worship, where the Bible is being taught. That is where you will always find Jesus. He says, two or three gather in my name, and in my name, what? How? That's corporate worship and prayer. This is where you'll find him always. You don't have to look very hard, which is kind of Jesus point there. And so what's he doing there? There's a terraced platform there was there, circular. And so at holiday time, the 
scholars, and by the word, the teacher, uh, the Greek word for teacher there is doctor. So as in PhD, as in scholars. So these are the, the heavyweight theologians of the rabbis of the day sitting with anybody. And usually the young men would come who had a calling and a thirst for knowledge and understanding of the Bible. And they'd do this rhetorical questions and things like this, this rabbinical way of teaching. And I wonder, I wrote down here, Nicodemus, question mark. Is Nicodemus there? Of course he has to be there. Nicodemus was, uh, was on staff there as a Pharisee and a doctor of the law. 18 years later, he will have an interview with Jesus as a man. And he'll ask Jesus about getting to heaven. And Jesus will say, Nicodemus, remember me, <laughs> 12 years old. You have to be born again, Nicodemus. And so, yeah. Where did he stay during those couple nights? Well, you know what? There are lots of rooms there at the temple for guest speakers and guest teachers. They have dormitory-style things, and people would just look out for everybody. It was the community of Israel. It was a world that you wouldn't recognize now. Fathers were everybody's father. And so Jesus was there, well taken care of. And Jesus' mind is, oh, well, obviously they left without me. He figured that out, and then he thought, well, they're going to figure it out and come back for me, right? So he's just thinking, I'm going to bide my time well while they're figuring out, you know, we don't have Jesus on board. And so what exactly is he doing in verses 46 through 47, sitting with the teachers there? He's blowing their minds. And how is he doing that? First of all, he's listening. The Bible says his Half-brother will remind us to be quick to listen. The beginning of wisdom is you're not always loading what you're going to say next and not even hearing what the person is saying. You're actually listening. And so he's listening to them. And what kinds of questions is he asking? And scholars all say the same thing. He's not asking 12-year-old questions. He knows a lot. He's been paying attention for 12 years, right? And so he's asking questions that in the Greek, it gives the implication that he is correcting and guiding them. In other words, let me give you an example. They would love to teach. Only the righteous person will inherit eternal life, right? And so I can hear the Lord asking them at 12 years old, well, well, why is it that the Psalms say there's nobody who's righteous, not even one, right? Those are the kinds of questions he's asking. He's asking, he's putting them on the defense, like explain yourself. If you say Yahweh is pleased when we keep all his laws and bring sacrifices, then Jesus might have said, well, I'm confused because Hosea says, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me, and to know me is better than bringing a burnt offering in Hosea. So Jesus is asking these kinds of questions, and the word there for amazed is to have the breath knocked out of you. Yeah, so it would be kind of like a middle school kid conversing and schooling the rocket scientists, right? That's what he's doing there. So the parents arrived, the fun part here, verse 48. I picture them out of breath. I picture them shocked, huge relief. 
accompanied with huge dismay. Mary is a normal human being. She was not immaculately conceived. She's not equal to God. She is a sinner who needed to trust in her son for salvation. She has all the character flaws anybody would have because she's a human being. And so she comes in, as any mother would do, and nobody blames her for this, but she's going to scold him. She hasn't slept much. Uh, she's upset, and she's going to see this as Jesus doing, right? And so she's going to scold him. Your father, your stepfather, and I anxiously searched for you. The word anxious there, as I mentioned, is to tor be tormented. We were tormented. What you did tormented us. This isn't like you. What's going on? Mary asked a question. How could you do this? And Jesus has a question for Mary. And since Jesus is sinless, even at 12, you got to hear the tone. The tone is sweet. The, so, the tone is warm and affectionate and affirming. Mom, come on. That was all unnecessary. You didn't. Why, why would you be worried, mom, caring, right? And that's how he answers. Why would, why would you be searching? He doesn't say this, but let me elaborate, maybe. You of all people, mom, <laughs> you know the story. All the stories you've been telling me for 12 years. Remember the angel. Remember the angels in the skies. Remember the wise men and the gifts. Remember the star. Come on, something big is happening here, Mom. Why, why, where would you expect me to be? Down at the mall, you know? <laughs> why did it take you three days? I mean, who left who? Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't say that, but you can feel it. You can feel him saying, that was a big waste of time, wasn't it, Mom? You just didn't need to do that. And he does, through the Gospels, always puts Mary in check. Always in a loving and beautiful way. So now he's trying to tell them when he says, my father, this is key, he's claiming deity already. The way you call God, you don't call him. First of all, they didn't call him father, but he called him my father, not the father. But I'm in my father's house doing my father's work. My father, in fact, let me prove to you how serious of a crime it was to call God your own father. Later in his life, he says, my father is working and so am I. They said, hey, listen, you can't heal on the Sabbath. It's Saturday. It's working. You can't do that. So Jesus says, oh, by the way, my father's working all the time. He doesn't take Saturdays off. And, and, and he says, and I'm working too. Me and my father, we're working. And then it says, for this reason, they tried to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. There it is calling God his own father. So that's what he was doing right there at 12. Listen, I have a relationship with you, mom. I have a relationship with you, stepdad. But now I'm a son of the commandments and I have a relationship with my father. I'm the son, not a son. And so this is where it starts. And they're lost. They don't get it, but here he is. Why so enthralled? And we'll move toward the end of the sermon now. Why is he just so <laughs> captured 
So much so he's not aware that they're leaving without him. Why? Because guess what? It's Passover and there are Passover scriptures being shared. He's coming of age and all the talk about lambs and sacrifices and atonement for sin. Now he's, getting, he's connecting the dots. The 12-year-old boy is now figuring it out. And perhaps they read this scripture there, Isaiah 53. I'll read it. Listen. Picture Jesus hearing these words. He grew up before the father like a tender little shoot, like a little plant, like a root out of dry ground, like out of nowhere, like out of Nazareth. <laughs> no beauty in him to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should find desirable. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering familiar with pain. Surely he took upon himself our pain, bore our suffering, Yet we considered him punished by God, but actually he was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus listening to Isaiah's words on Passover. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. We're all like sheep. We've gone astray. Each one of us turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. So he's transfixed. They leave because he's figuring something out. It's me. I'm the lamb. It's Passover. The scriptures. He's becoming of age. Aha. I'm the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and I have to be about my father's business as his son given for the life of the world. Let's close up with a little PS, just how it rounds out. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Why is verse 51 there? Verse 51 is there to say he's just sort of announced his deity as God the son, really. And yet, God the Father is saying, yeah, there's a different dynamic now with, between him and his parents, but he's going to come under and honor the fifth commandment to be obedient to his mom and dad. But his mother pondered or treasured all these things in her heart, though they couldn't connect the dots totally, and Jesus kept growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man until he was 30, and boom, John the Baptist introduces him. First words again, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So we go from the temple there when he realizes, oh, it's me, to 18 years later, the first introduction, I'm the one who takes away the sins of the world. When I read that Mary was pondering, the word is to treasure, but to think deeply about, I started thinking deeply and say, God, what, what, what's to ponder here? And I started thinking that in the midst of a crazy holiday season at the close of a crazy year, we could lose sight of Jesus. And if Mary and Joseph could lose sight of the son, so can we. And the same thing Jesus might say to me and you, who just we, we just get so depressed and like without hope and we listen to the news and just think, what kind of world is this now? Where's God? And the Lord says, well, <laughs> where do you think I am? <laughs> I'm in your word. Open it up. 
Read it with faith. I haven't left. I'm in your heart. Talk to me. Share what you're feeling. Talk to me about everything. I'm in the midst of the assembly of my people. When the Bible's being taught, people are praying and worshiping. I'm here for you, to be with you, to give you a hope and a future. God is not far from any of us. He's as close as a word on your lips, even closer right there in your heart. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful word. Makes it so simple. God, you say, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. We pray, God, that you would remind us of staying close to Christ, to keeping our eyes upon him, staying near, God, not to lose sight of the one who gives us life and hope and a peace that guards our hearts. We commit ourselves to your care in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.